This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning, I'm Jackie Boat, and our scripture reading today is Matthew 5, 27 to 30. It can be found on page 810 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Thanks, Ms. Jackie. Hey, let me, uh, let me just check in with you. That's a lot. Um, so we went cancer, church we are. Um, I, I say that just to kind of go like, man, I think it's the kind of church we should be. Um, as Adam was praying, I realized, man, I love Kevin Haley. I love his laugh. I was with him Thursday, and just to hear him laugh, so good for my soul, and to hear Sean laugh. Um, and I thought but there's a number of you in this body right now that have cancer as well. We have members that are in the ER this morning. Um, there's a lot of suffering. And what's beautiful to me about the community of God and God's word and his, his love for us expressed through Christ and now given to us kind of in a way that we can experience through the Holy Spirit is that we get a chance to be honest about those places. And so if you're wondering, like checking out LBC and kicking the tires and wondering who we are, this is kind of who we are. And we're the kind of church that does that while kids are running around the room. So we're just kind of here and want to welcome you into it. It can be kind of overwhelming, though, I realize as you hear stories of someone else's pain, it reminds you of your pain. And so I just want to acknowledge that's where we are. Parents, you heard the where we're going to go again this morning. And so kids, your parents are really wise and smart. They know what's best for you as we talk about topics that can feel kind of heavy. And so if at some point this morning, your mom and dad kind of tap you and say, hey, let's, let's uh, take a tour of the building or step outside for a second, that'll be great. They're trying to lead you really well in that space. Um, moms and dads, again, we're going to talk about it in a way that um, matches last week and I think will be appropriate, again, to have a conversation as a family about things that really matter. I think our kids can, can engage that, but you know what's best, and so we trust you to lead your family there. Um, I just want to start just by saying that. Let me just pray for us, um, kind of to gather my own thoughts, actually, and then we'll jump into this text. So, Jesus, we come to you now and we ask for your help. We ask that you would speak. And you've already been speaking. You've already told us things like you're a shield about us, that we don't have to be afraid. What an amazing gift to get that already in our bag for the rest of this morning, to hear then about things that are really hard. Thanks that you are a shield and we don't have to be afraid. Thanks that in Christ alone we can stand on a solid rock that nothing can shake and nothing can take away your love from us because of what Christ has done. We Say thank you for what you've already trained us in and taught us. And thanks that you've already given us hope that um, in the midst of suffering and sadness and pain and 
sin and brokenness. Uh, there's healing and there's restoration and there's um, a hope that we have, not just for this life, but in the life to come. So thanks for the reminder that we're eternal beings. That's a massive gift to be reminded of. So now as we jump into your word in a real focused way, would you, would you help us? Would you gather us? Would you reorient our hearts? Would you do this healing work and this settling work and this protecting work? Uh, would you grant repentance? Would you grant hope for people that just feel so stuck in shame or in pride? God, would you expand our view of who you are and what you're like so that we don't just see you as the one that we have to give an account to or you'll crush us, but one who was crushed in our place so that we could have life. You are a loving, generous, gracious God. Would you orient our feelings and our thoughts and our past and our future, our objections, our longings? Would you orient all those things around who you are this morning? Do that by your Holy Spirit. Would you save people this morning who are watching online or by themselves? People are in an overflow room, people are in this room. God, would you rescue and save and redeem, which is why you sent your son Jesus in the first place. Uh, so come, we ask, and do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if we can make sure we hit the clock, I want to be wise here. Potent, but not long is my hopes. Thank you. Uh, without instruments, who knows? We could go like an hour and a half, and you wouldn't even know it. You, you would know it. I wouldn't know it. You would feel it in your bodies. But um. Hey, uh, I had a couple of thoughts coming into this, this week as I was praying for you. One of which was the trap that we normally feel or gets pushed on us in our culture of a series of false choices that we're asked to make. You're constantly put in situations where you're asked to make an either-or decision when it really is kind of a both-and decision, right? So it comes to political candidates. You have two choices, and you're like, man, I wish there was a more nuanced way to go forward. When it comes to the things that you love and long for, the things you're asked to give your allegiance to, we're normally put in spaces where we're given an either-or when actually what's deserved or demanded or more helpful would be kind of a nuanced both-and. And we carry that into Scripture as well and into our understanding of faith. And there's places where life is just simpler when it's either-or, but, but lots of things really do have a both-and. So like, for example, in the Scriptures, does God call us or do we choose? The answer is yes. God calls and we choose. Right? Do we preach truth or do we preach grace? And the answer is yes. Right? There's places where do we want to empower people or do we want to lead them? Like, well, yes. Do, do you love your wife or do you serve your wife? You're like, please, yes. There's so many places where it should be a both and. And one of those that we get to confront this morning is a lie that you either pursue holiness or you believe in God's love. And what Jesus does in this passage is beautifully puts together for us both of them on display that it's because of God's holiness that we actually experience his love and it's because of his love that we get to pursue holiness Jesus in this text remember is giving us a big vision for what the kingdom of God is like and he's been explicit it's not for those that are strong and competent and holy and they've done everything right it's for those who are needy remember how he starts it's for the poor in spirit, it's for the weak, it's for the meek, it's for the lowly, it's for those who are hungry and thirsty, it's for those who have longing, that's who the kingdom of God is for. So it's an invitation to love and grace, but Jesus helps us so clearly see that invitation actually changes us. So, so as a church, we want to proclaim hope, and we also want to pursue transformation. We want to talk about what God has done, it's all about Him, He's done everything, and then we get a chance as His people then to 
respond. And so when it comes to issues of sexuality and our own brokenness and our sinfulness, what Jesus does is he ties a white-hot zeal for holiness with his already declared love for us. So we get to stand in a place where we're not asking, can I be holy so that I get love, but from a place where I already have love, how do I pursue holiness, which is where this text takes us. Again, the context is really, really important. Last week we talked about this text is an example of what Jesus is saying when he says in verse 20 of chapter 5 that we have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees if we're ever going to come into the kingdom of God. He's already dropped kind of ultimate things for us. And what we said was that's not a call to do 5% better than the most holy people that you know. It's not do more and try harder. That's not the command there. It actually is you need a righteousness that exceeds exactly what you could accomplish. The most you could accomplish, you need something from the inside out that would transform you. And so he says in that same text, I came to fulfill the old covenant, which was take your hearts of stone that are crushed under the law and give you hearts of flesh that now beat for and long for and are in tune with the intimacy of God so that you respond to his love. So Jesus is giving examples of what that looks like. And he's done anger and murder. He says, you're not just given over to commodifying people and ranking yourself in entitlement, taking from people and judging them. You actually get to go be reconciled. The kingdom of God allows you in the big sky kingdom of God. It allows you not just this endless cycle of resentment and anger, but actually forgiveness and reconciliation. And the same is true when it comes to adultery and lust. The big sky kingdom of God is big enough to capture your imagination in such a way that you're not just given over to your own appetites. So we talked last week about this vision of sexuality that's given to us in the scriptures where you are seen as more than just your bodies. The biblical view of sex actually is an elevated view of sex. It's bigger than what you normally have, right? You've been told to reduce yourself and other people down simply to the shape of their body, to what their bodies can make your body feel. You've been reduced down. You've actually been dehumanized by our culture. In the name of freedom and liberty and choices and rights, you've been enslaved. So we started last week and just said he's, he's not just talking about outward behavior. He's talking about things inside of our hearts. And we looked at this word lust, and it has a lot to do with like coveting and stealing and taking. So it's not just appreciating someone's beauty on the outside. It's having an intent to take their humanity from them. Jesus says you can't do that. And if you do that, it actually has these consequences on your soul that are detrimental. So last week we looked at what is this beautiful vision for sexuality? What is God calling us to that we are really to be more human than we actually experience now? What a, what a beautiful gift. God actually wants to satisfy you more, not take from you. Because maybe you've been thinking these either ors like God is either out to get you or he doesn't care what you do. He's either a grandpa that's unconnected or he's actually miserly and monitoring you in ways that you can never actually measure up. I think your view of God actually shapes how you think about what he wants to offer you. How you answer the question, what is God like, changes how you engage a text like this. Is he inviting you into freedom and into liberty and the flourishing? Or is he restricting you and taking away from you? Right? You don't want to do an either or. You want to say, it's because he's inviting me into liberty. It's because he wants me to flourish that he actually puts boundaries on my behavior. Because he knows those things that will lead to pain and harm, like a parent that puts rules around their children to keep them safe. Kids, you have an illustration in your packet about how playing in the street, and your parents aren't trying to destroy you by not letting you play in the street. They're not trying to take all the fun away. They're actually trying to save your life. 
They want you to live and actually be happy. So they say, hey, don't play in the street. And if you trust your parents, if you think they have your good in mind, you're eager to kind of follow that. But if you think they're withholding from you, you're tempted to step off that curb into traffic. Well, as an illustration like that, just think about the stuff in your life where you know you've seen it a thousand times bringing shipwreck to everybody else, and yet you still step towards it. Why? It's because you have this thought in your mind, there's something more that I need that God's withholding, and if I just had this, then I would be okay. It's the ancient temptation we see all the way back into the garden that you need more than you have if you're going to flourish and survive and thrive. You, you should take some fruit that you don't have. You should take some knowledge you don't have. You should experience something that God's withholding. If you actually did that, then you would be really human. In fact, you would be more like God than you are right now. That's the baseline temptation. And you hear it all day long, every day, in a variety of settings that beckon to you a false invitation to life. But it's an invitation that's actually wrapped around a hook. It's actually bait on something that would harm you. So Jesus just loves us enough to put ultimate things in front of us and say, let's talk for a second about how do you respond to issues of sexuality? What do you do with your eyes and with your body? How do you actually pursue holiness because you're loved, not an either or? That's how I want to set things up. I want to walk through this text, and we did the first two verses last week of 27 and 28. So this morning we're going to focus on verses 29 and 30. But let me just start with 27, and then we'll talk through the text. We're going to talk about what causes lust, how we should respond to lust, and why we should respond that way. If you're looking for some hooks, here's where he starts in verse 27. You've heard it said, he's quoting the Old Testament, this is the big 10, that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's not just your outward body, it's actually what happens on the inside. And then he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. So you see the parallelism there. He's saying the same thing twice, and he uses eyes and he uses hands. What causes lust it's pretty complicated, but maybe you could put it into categories of, of what we do with our eyes and what we do with our bodies. It's what we see and what we do. It's, it's lenses that we have, and it's liturgies that we participate in. And of course, he's not saying that this is the literal way you should do this. If you mutilate yourself, if you were to gouge out an eye, then you would be fine, or chop off a hand, you'd be fine, because you know you can lust with one eye or no eyes. I have images in my head from when I was in second grade. My first exposures to pornography, I can still vividly remember when I was in second grade. I don't need eyes anymore to be able to engage in lustful thoughts. So he's not saying mutilate yourself because you could steal with one hand. Right? He's not saying do that literally, but he is saying something. He's saying go to these extremes we'll get to in a moment. But he's talking about lenses and liturgies. Lust comes from what we see as well as how we see. Right? It's what we put in front of us, it's images, it's things that happen, it's, it's ideas, it's fantasies, it's longings, it's, it's what we see, but it's also how we see. If we see people as commodities for our own pleasure, if we see ourselves reduced down just to our appetites, if we think that just what we do with our bodies doesn't actually matter, it's more spiritual things that matter, if we've been told hey, I have biological needs that I have to get met some way or I'll explode, which actually happens in our culture, which is crazy. We've actually been told that. You've been told you have needs. If you don't get them met, you're going to explode. 
Man, if you believe that, well, then you see that the world do that way, you see yourself that way, you will engage in things differently, right? So what we see and what we do, liturgies. Liturgies are practices, they're behaviors, there's things that we do that have repetition to them. They actually train us. So, so we pray on Sunday mornings in this way that it's getting less awkward for us, but it's still a little bit awkward to actually pray together as a church. Why? We're trying to train our hearts how to pray. We hear God's word as a liturgy to train us to hear God's word. Singing is a liturgy. And then you have all kinds of COVID liturgies, right? Of washing your hand, wearing your mask, and trying to figure out. So is it strange now to be in a space where you don't have to wear a mask and still feel like you should be wearing a mask? Why? You've been trained for like 14 months. It's like a reflex. You don't even think about it. As an illustration, then everything is shaping you. You actually have thousands of unconscious liturgies that you practice. Every addict will tell you the ritualizing starts way before they actually take the substance or get the hit. It started way earlier in the day when they started the liturgy of whether it's self-loathing or it's entitlement. They began from that place of thinking about what would soothe that, what they're entitled to, what they're going to take, how it's going to feel. And they've got their spot in their own heart, a liturgy into addiction, right? We have actually practiced our way into things. So Jesus says, hey, there's lenses that you have and there's liturgies you participate in. And our world has so many lifeful liturgies they want to give you. They want to give you lies about who you are, where you're about. It comes from what you deserve, what you're owed, what you should get at the end of the day, what you should do when you're lonely, what you should do when you can't sleep, what you should do when you're sad, what you should do when somebody doesn't meet your needs, what you should do when somebody doesn't meet your expectation. The world has handed you really crisp, clear liturgies that are lies. And it's what we've done for a while. We've watched other people do it, and it actually shapes us in ways that are pretty dang harmful. I talked last week a little bit about this kind of starting to think through desires, and not every desire should actually be satisfied and met. And to be honest, in the middle of the sermon, I kind of got jumbled on my words, and I think it was just a little bit confusing. There's places where we've been told every desire you have, it should be satisfied. And Jesus would say, no, no, there's some things like like stealing a person, that, that idea of coveting and taking from dehumanizing somebody, that desire should not be satisfied. It's not that you would get married and then you could satisfy that. Actually, lust has no appropriate satisfaction. God is the one who actually heals where that desire comes from and reorients it, but he doesn't actually satisfy it. There's an amazing book called How People Change by Tim Lane and Paul David Tripp. They talk through a passage in Jeremiah. And basically what they say, there's an illustration of two kinds of trees. One's a fruitful tree and one's this thorn bush. And it says the heat comes and it causes things to grow. And so the heat shining on a fruitful tree with good roots and a heat shining on a thorn bush with bad roots, it's the same heat, right? It's the same stress, the same job, same situation, same needs, same longing. That same heat of a situation that comes down onto different places of our heart and roots that produce different kinds of fruits. And the idea that Jesus actually came not to make your behavior better, but to change what's going on on the inside, to change the roots. So he heals what actually gives rise to the desire to dehumanize yourself and other people, not actually satisfy that, right? He wants to satisfy you with himself so that desire actually begins to diminish. But he starts with these lenses and these liturgies, what we see and what we do. You get a chance in a morning like this to actually stop and go, what am I putting in front of my eyes? How do I see people? How do I see God? How do I see myself? How do I see my culture? How do I see things around me? 
because I put myself at the center of that. I see them as opportunities to satisfy myself. I see them as habits that I should actually engage with when it comes to these liturgies. The lenses and the liturgies of your life are where your lusts come from, and you cultivate longing and desire. It doesn't just happen upon you. It comes from somewhere, Jesus says. So thinking about eyes and hands as windows into that. So that's where lust comes from. Secondly, then what should we do? How do we respond? What's the right response to these lusts? And Jesus says it's extremes. Just write down the word extremes, maybe in your Bible next to that. Like what he's calling for here is an extreme response. Again, not self-mutilation, right? You could cut off parts of your body and still actually have disproportionate loves in your heart what he's saying is go to extremes when it comes to what you see and what you do when it comes to your lenses and your liturgies to actually have your heart transitioned and transformed and changed from the inside out it's a it's a call to guard your heart jesus will actually say in the next chapter in chapter six that our eyes are like windows into the body it's what we see and take in it changes us from the inside out it actually has this effect on us. So he says, go to extremes because you are so valuable. God actually wants your heart to be protected and cared for. Here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that if you look at porn, you'll go to hell, right? Because he says, hey, it's better for you that you would lose one of your members of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And so you can look at this and go, man, if I lost, do I go to hell? Is this like a call to perfection? Is that what he's saying? Because he says it twice. He's trying to emphasize something, right? With my eyes and with my hands. What does he mean that if my eye causes me to sin, I should tear it out or my hand causes me to sin I should chop it off so that my heart is protected so I don't lose my whole body and go to hell rather than just one of my members what he's saying is this is not a game there's a very real enemy who's out to destroy you and for you to casually go through life thinking that's not the case sets you up to actually be harmed and demolished right there's a prowling lion at every moment our ancient enemy using shame and pride and arrogance and fear and anxiety and anger, using all the weapons at his disposal to actually turn your heart away from God. So Jesus is saying, hey, would you go to extreme lengths to guard what you see and what you do, the lenses by which you see yourself in the world and the liturgies that you practice? Would you go to extremes? Right? We're not doing an either or here. It's not Either he means something by this or it's just figurative language. No, he means something by this. And what he means by this is, hey, earnestly with all of your effort, fight hard to keep your heart in a space where Jesus is what you see as your treasure. And the liturgies of your life are cultivating love and affection for him. Right? It's all over the scriptures. Let me just give you a couple of them. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 12. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. That's not what we owe. We don't owe the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then he reminds them of their identity. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the Spirit as adoption of sons. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's this call towards holiness rooted in an identity that's given to us by God say because of who you are would you live into that and if you don't you die he's not saying if you look at porn you go to hell he is saying if you love something and look to it to save you other than God that's the definition of idolatry and that will send you to hell in any expression of that worship regardless 
of what it is. He's not saying there's like a quota if you lust this much or look at this much stuff or if you do this much with your body, then you kind of tip over and you lose your salvation. He's not saying that. He's talking about affections that have actually been stirred by God. It's a new identity. But if your identity is not one that's rooted in Christ, then you do have all kinds of issues. Listen to this. This is in Romans 13, verse 14. Put, the, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's identity. And make no provision for the flesh or to gratify its desires. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that we should lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He goes on in verse 4 to say, you haven't yet resisted sin to the spot of shedding your own blood. Talk about extremes. He says you haven't actually gone to the efforts to kind of keep your heart pure that you haven't shed your own blood. And now he comes down a few more verses later after he's reminded us about our sonship again. That discipline is actually an act of love in Hebrews 12. He says this, now strive for peace with everyone in verse 14. And for the holiness that without which one will not see the Lord. See too that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many have been defiled. See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his own birthright. Right, He traded his identity for a single meal. He wanted to be satisfied in his appetites. He traded who he was for a single meal, he says. And he was rejected and found no chance to repent even though he was sorrowful even with tears. You see other passages like Colossians chapter 3, which we get our true north as a church from, telling us to put to death the things of the flesh. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, And don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. People that have that identity won't inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you, he says. Speaking of identity, you used to actually be defined that way. That was your place of worship. It's how you saw yourself. That's what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Friends, what he's saying to us is go to extremes to keep yourself not just safe, but cultivating love for God. Go to extremes to realize there are ways that actually your soul is in danger and you could drift, right? It's not an either or. Do you care about holiness or do you rest in your salvation? Yes. God, yes. Please, yes. Do both of those. Because you rest in your salvation, white hot with tons of zeal, pursue holiness because that's the God who said, this is the way to flourishing. Jesus is not giving like extreme like rankings or point systems or ways that you could accomplish your own salvation. He's saying, if you understand what it means to be in the kingdom, you're willing to go to extremes to engage in whatever it takes to keep your heart tied to the king. Because you've got all this temptation, all this stuff around you. So yes, please, friends, guard your heart. The Bible doesn't know of assurance with flippant responses to sin. It just doesn't make any sense. You won't find a passage in Scripture that says, hey, if you prayed a prayer when you're four years old, you're fine. Don't sweat it. Do whatever you want. You got that deal when you were four. You cast the voodoo spell and sealed it up. You're totally fine. What you hear is pursue holiness. Examine yourself. And there are always invitations to receive Jesus. They're never who's in, who's out. They're never pushing you away. They're always welcomes in. It warns you to welcome you. The warnings are not separating you and pushing you away and saying you're not good enough. The warnings are all welcome. They're all welcome. Hey, examine your heart. Are there places where you are cherishing something other than Jesus? 
Cut that out. Chop that off and turn to Jesus. That's the way it functions, right? The warning is always a welcome. So, so then it's like liturgies and lenses, right? It's what you do. So don't just stop doing things. What are things that you should actually pursue? So this week in the newsletter, I sent a ton of resources to you, and one of them was a book I would love for everyone in this church to read called Capture by a Better Vision. The new title is Closing the Window. And I actually gave you a summary of it in the newsletter. If you missed that, you can email our office. We'll forward it to you. You can email me. I'd love for you to have at least this summary. In this book, the author gives us five kind of strategies to engage in purity. Would you just listen to these and maybe write them down if you have a pen? He gives five A's. The first one, he says, have an abhorrence for pornography, for anything that's out of bounds sexually. Not just the effects of that pornography, not the shame that it brings, but actually a hatred for what it is. Abhor pornography, anything that's impure. Why? Because it is where we started last week, dehumanizing. It wrecks you. It breaks you. It lies to you. So, so hate it. Don't play with it. Don't be tantalized by it. Don't make provision for it. Actually begin to hate it. And he says, secondly, it's not just enough to hate something. You have to turn towards God. So he says the second A is adoration to God. Abhorrence to pornography and adoration to God. Right? Cultivate a desire for who God is. Right? To have your affections stirred. Right? Jesus is all about our hearts. He's trying to protect our heart and cultivate affections inside of our heart. Right? You won't just go through life saying no and make it to the other side. That's a legalism and some sort of form of self-righteousness. What God calls you into is a, a relationship with him where you get to be in relationship and your affections are healed and stirred towards him, right? An adoration of God sees God for who he really is. It actually puts him on the throne of your life rather than you on the throne of your life. And you get a chance then to actually be whole and full and satisfied and flourish, right? So hate porn, abhor porn, adore God. And then he says, sit in an assurance of grace. So much of our sexual sin or any sort of sin is actually rooted in a temptation that you need something, right? So you're hungry, you're angry, you're lonely, you're tired. You, you have some sort of need, and this is the way to get that thing. Even if it's illegitimate, it would soothe you just for a moment. So what if you could actually sit assured of God's grace for you, that you were already okay? You were already loved. You were already complete. You were already fully welcomed. You didn't have to do something or earn something or achieve something or accomplish something or take something. You actually were already okay, like sit into an assurance of grace. And if you've been around for a while, this sounds real familiar, right, to that bottom line of a growing awareness of sin, to see sin for what it really is, to see pornography not as this tantalizing thing that's a delight that I shouldn't indulge, to see it as death, have a growing awareness of sin. And a growing awareness of God's holiness, right? The, the beauty of who he is, right? To adore him more and more. And that actually gives us an assurance of grace of what God has done for us on the cross, right? So those are the first three A's. Abhorrence of porn, adoration of God, assurance of grace. And then he says, four, avoid temptation. Right? Be proactive. What Jesus says, right? These lenses and these liturgies, like cut them off, gouge them out, step away. Step away from the patterns where you are tempted so here's some examples from my life like my my phone has probably like a 12 year old setting on it for security and my wife has my password i don't even i don't even know how to unlock my phone like i can use my phone but i'm like when i hit that filter things and this is restricted content for a 12 year old i'm against the wall i don't know what to do so i have to give my phone to my wife which is an amazing moment of accountability and if i've just been like looking at pet supplies or something it's no big deal but in that moment right there's this space where my wife is the gatekeeper, not of like my purity, but my phone. 
Think about like um, your phone by your bed. Think about what happens when you're falling asleep. Is that actually healthy and wise for you? Think about movies that you just won't let yourself watch, right? To give a steady diet of liturgies from our world that tell you you should pursue something that you shouldn't pursue radically affects you. So my kids, um, they'll tell you they hate this. They actually love it. I know they love this. When we watch a movie together and there's a moment or a scene that's questionable and we've been like into the movie and we're just kind of following along and we're cheering for the protagonist and then the protagonist does something that would actually damage their soul. They love it when I just stop the movie for a second and go, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Did you see that? Did you catch that? Hey, man, we were cheering for them all along, and they were dating, and it was so cute. Then all of a sudden, they're sleeping together before they're married. Hey, hey, just so we're clear, that will kill them. That's actually going to harm you. That isn't actually what love looks like. Are we all clear? And they list, oh, thank you, Father. So wise. We love it. Thank you for the ways you're engaging movie night. And then we press play again. But, but what I'm doing in that moment is a liturgy with my kids because I have to absorb messages from our culture that lie to them all the time. My kids get thousands of messages, and I know they do because I get thousands of messages, and I know you do because that's the way the world we live in is. You get so many messages, so many liturgies. So to stop and say, what is my Netflix binging training me towards? What's the show that I watched that I love? The plot line, the characters are so dynamic, they're so developed, they're so layered, and I love the storyline. But there's a ton of nudity. And there's all kinds of stuff that the scriptures we actually read about would say will send you into a space apart from God. What liturgies are going on inside your heart, right? The author of this book says, hey, not just hate sin, not just adore God, not just have an assurance of grace, but actually actively avoid temptation. And I could give you like a thousand things, but would you just stop and go, man, where is it for you? What trips you up? Where do you have regret and shame? What do you feel entitled to? Where do you go when no one's looking? What do you do when you're sure you won't get caught? What are the places where you feel like, actually, if somebody did know this, I would be in trouble? What are those spaces? And could you begin to think through, what are you seeing in that moment? Not just the images, but what are you seeing about yourself, about God, about other people? How do you see that? And what liturgies are you cultivating there? Right, so I have this avoidance of temptation. And the fifth A he gives is to have accountability with others, right? To not have to do this alone. I'm so excited for small groups to start in the fall. Our vision for small groups is not the place where you just come to socialize. It's the place where you come to actually be encouraged and fed. We'll gather around the word. We'll pray together. And then we'll unburden ourselves from the places that we've struggled all week. And we'll be reminded of our identity in Jesus. That's the values of our small groups, right? We gather around the word. We pray together. We unburden ourselves and say, man, this is where I've struggled. And the question won't be, did you struggle this week? That's not a good small group question. That's an either or, right? Either you did or you didn't. The question is, where did you struggle this week? Was it with your kids? Was it with your adult parents? Was it with your job? Was it in your body? Was it with sexuality? Was it with your temper? Was it with your money? Where did you struggle this week? Oh, friend, could we break that cycle of that liturgy and could you bring that in the room, have the light of Christ shine upon it? and heal it, and then quickly have the community speak grace over you and remind you what Christ has done on your behalf. It's not accountability groups where we just traffic in fear and shame, and if you've blown it, you don't show up that week because you don't want to give a bad report. Not accountability groups, but think in terms of what some authors call identity groups, where we're reminding ourselves of who Jesus is. Because remember, that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is about. He's telling us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Right? So, so abhor porn, adore God, have an assurance of his grace he's already purchased for you, avoid temptation, 
and actually be in accountability with others. I think in those spaces now, we get a chance to actually move towards holiness. So would you just stop for a second, take stock in your heart. Where do you feel resistance right now? What feels too simplistic? Where are you saying, yeah, but pastor, if you knew my childhood, you knew what was going on, you wouldn't be saying these things, you'd say something different. Where are you overwhelmed with shame to where you're like, hey, this is true for everybody else, but it's not true for you because you've already done so much. Like, what is the resistance? Does it sound more like pride and entitlement? Does it sound more like shame? Does it sound like naivety? Like, does it sound like woundedness? What is the resistance in your soul right now as you hear me say, hey, God actually has a plan for you to take extremes to resist temptation? Is it the lie that you'll never change? Is it the idea that you've done too much and if people really knew, they surely would reject you? Like, where, where is that objection coming from? Can you capture it for a second? And then just ask, hey, whose voice is telling you that? Is that your heavenly Father who sent His Son to die in your place, who fills you with the Spirit and calls you His child and adopts you and fills you? Or is it the Father of lies who accuses the cross of Jesus actually deals with our shame in profound ways where whatever it is that's keeping us from trusting Christ gets dealt with. There's a little book called A Gospel Primer by a guy named Milton Vincent. Let me just read you a section from there. He says this, The cross exposes me before the eyes of other people, informing them of the depths of my depravity. If I wanted others to think highly of me, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God was required that I might be saved. Read that again. If I wanted others to think highly of me, if the game was my reputation, if I was eager for you to know that I was amazing, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God was required that I might be saved. I'm so bad, my only hope is the Son of God himself killed on my behalf. But when I stand at the foot of the cross and I'm seen by others in light of that cross, I am left uncomfortably exposed before their eyes. Indeed, the most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgotha's hill with the worst facts about me thus exposed and in full view of others. I find myself feeling that I have truly nothing left to hide. Thankfully, the more I am exposed, that much more I see that I am in the cross. The more I find myself opening up to others about ongoing issues of sin in my life, and the more I open up, I am confessing to my fellow Christians the sins in my soul. The more I do that, the more I enjoy the healing of the Lord in response to the grace-filled counsel and prayers of my friends. That the cross of Jesus isn't the place that we are crushed in shame. It's the place where our shame is actually exposed and healed. Why does Jesus say, go to extremes, cut out your eye, chop off your hand? It's so you would actually have your soul cultivated in beautiful ways. Because what he says is you're not just made for this life. So let's go to the point number three. Why should we do that? Because of eternity. Why do we go to extremes? It's because of eternity. Did you catch that? There's this warning about the temperance of life, this um, space where things only last a few decades versus eternity. He's saying, like, why would you trade one of the members of your body for all of your eternity. He's reminding them about how they're made, who they are, what it's like to be them, that they're more than just their bodies. They're not merely human. They're spiritual beings that will live for forever. So he takes extremes and he ties it to eternity. In the moment of temptation to stop and say, this earthly thing can never actually satisfy me anyway. It's not designed to do that. I have eternal longings that I'm trying to get an image or a person or a behavior or a practice 
to actually engage and heal me of. It never could do that because I'm an eternal being made for heaven. And the warning here about going to hell, again, every warning is an invitation. It's a welcome. He's not just saying bad people are over there, good people are over here. He's saying all of us are bad. All of us stand at the foot of the cross exposed and in shame. So, oh, come and receive. Right? It's, a, it's an invitation. Do you see that as an invitation? Do you see it as a warning that is actually welcoming you to God himself? Or do you hear in there bad, dirty, shameful, no hope? Again, question that voice. Like, where's that voice coming from? That it's not the voice of the Father. It's the voice of the Father of lies. Jesus is telling you this. Hey, go to extremes because of eternity, because your heart is made for so much more. You're not just your appetites. And in fact, every appetite you have that is pure and holy, God himself will satisfy for forever. So it's a call to actually right-size sex and intimacy. Friends, we simultaneously have too big of a view in the sense that we look to it to heal us or make us whole or give us identity. Sex could never actually do that. When you look at an image to validate you, you're giving it way too much power. It could never actually do it. So you have an elevated view on the one hand, and your view is also too low on the other hand. It's not an either or, it's a both and. You both elevate it too much and you diminish it, right? You reduce it down just to your bodies rather than what it's pointing to. Remember the scriptures say this life is temporary. We're heading for the next one. And God uses sex and intimacy and marriage and love and affection as an illustration of his relationship with us. So what you're doing with your bodies is a reenactment of God's covenant love for you. Which I don't think makes the bedroom weird. I think it makes it beautiful. And it does put parameters and boundaries because you cannot express what it's desiring to point you to in illegitimate ways. You just simply can't do it. But in that covenant of marriage, which is the illustration of Christ's love for the church, you don't have to be married to engage in that. You can actually, as a single person, think through what that means for you as one who is dearly, dearly loved. So Jesus points them to eternity. Stop and just go, man, what am I thinking about? What am I calling for? What am I longing for? And do I have an imagination that's big enough to actually capture my heart for all of eternity? That will change us. That same author, Tim Chester, who gives these five A's, this is the way he closes his book. He says, porn is a sin of the imagination. We need to counter it by enlarging our imaginations. The answer to porn is to believe that there is truth and that we are so much more than our intellectual process, that we need to be captured by this truth in our imaginations to meditate and ponder and wonder and sing this truth. We need to feel the truth and glory in the truth and delight in the truth. Battling porn in our lives is not an exercise in denying pleasure, It's about fighting pleasure with a greater pleasure. He goes on to say, we don't just stop using porn, important though that is. Let me suggest that you get a vision for something that's much, much bigger, a vision for reflecting Christ's glory in this world. Only this will be big enough to eclipse the appeals of porn. What happens if you weigh a life with porn against a life without porn? Put it like that, porn will always win, right? If it's just porn or no porn... Because it offers excitement and pleasure and thrills, but a life without porn is actual life without these excitements or pleasures or thrills by definition it's not a lesser life but a greater life a life without porn is is the true alternative it's it's not just not doing something it's doing something else we should instead be weighing a life not just without porn but a life that's lived for god's glory porn versus glory porn versus glory fleeting pleasures versus lasting pleasures shame versus glory destruction versus eternal life Now which one looks more appealing, he says. Jesus invites us and welcomes us by reminding us 
that we're eternal beings made in his image, which is what we celebrate in communion is that he accomplished a way for our sins to be forgiven and for us to be welcomed into a relationship. Hey, man, that's a lot. Kids, that's a ton to hold on to. That's a bigger view than the world is going to give you. But if you can stop and think through, like, the lenses I have, the liturgies I'm cultivating, the extremes, and then keep eternity in mind, what you hold in your hands when you hold that little cup with juice and bread is the down payment on that eternity where you are eternally satisfied in God. We live now in this groaning place, right, where there's cancer and there's pain and there's hurt and there's all kinds of harm happening around us, but the down payment has been made on that eternal life. So Christians, I would love for you to go through a liturgy where you remember what Christ has done. It actually grows your faith and changes you from the inside out, not because there's magic in that little cup or that little wafer, but because of what it's pointing you to, of what Christ has actually accomplished for you. So Christians, I want to invite you to take communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm not sure where your mind's at this morning. This might feel really strange, but I hope it feels compelling that it's something different than what the world has lied to you about for so, so long. Communion is for those who are trusting Jesus. If you're ready to trust Jesus today, then take communion with us and then let's talk. I would love to spend some time today hearing your story, what's going on in your life. I would love to tell you more about what it means to follow after Jesus. If you're ready to trust Christ, then take communion. If you're not ready, just sit in your seat and pray. Ask God to speak to you. Ask him to heal you. Ask him to show himself to you. Ask him to actually speak in ways that you need to hear with your objections and your frustrations and your questions. There's actually prayers in the back of that bulletin that will give you some examples of what that might sound like. So if you're not following Jesus, just pray. There's zero pressure. If you are following Jesus, let's take communion together and let God cultivate these things in our heart. Let me pray for us and the band will sing us uh, through one more song. They will sing us through a song. They will lead us in singing in one more song. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Thanks for your words that reorient us. Thank you for the ways that you heal us. Would you come now and minister to us and speak to us in ways that um, we get healed, I pray. Thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. It is our hope. Thanks you didn't tell us just be better and try harder and keep ourselves pure. You actually came to provide a way for us to be cleansed and whole. We receive your shame-lifting sacrifice so we might actually have hope. Would you engage our hearts with that truth? Now I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.